How can we better equip ourselves to take on the new day, our goals, and the world? How do we stoke our inspiration? By dropping in, we'll hear from credible experts on ways to thrive in this environment. As persons trying to cope, as workers learning to pivot in our careers, and as those curious about life, wellness, family, healing, and humor, we'll learn by sharing stories. Like the watering hole, dropping in is a communal place. People who've had the courage to tell their stories offer the nuggets they've gathered along the way. They bring us the spark to confront what matters. Everybody everywhere is on a hero's journey of trying to survive and do well. Stories from these diverse sources pave the way, even if the paths are new or unknown. Drop in with us to discover the roots and where we go from here. And now, here's our host, Diane Dewey. Thank you for dropping in and welcome everyone. With holidays upon us and a look back at a crazy year when movements were born, individual efforts still stood out. We all hear about how one person can make a difference, but how does that work exactly? How does one person emerge as an expert or leader in the field, especially when overcoming being a member of a minority, like being a woman in the 1960s? Here to talk to us about it is Andrea Barnett, author of the book, Visionary Women, How Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall, and Alice Water changed our world. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you, Diane. It's a pleasure to be here. It's wonderful having you. I know that you're um, snowed in, but um, I'm glad that it didn't um, it, it didn't interrupt us. So that's great. Um, your book. Yeah. Uh, you uh, yes. You're you're coming to us from upstate New York, um, which is upstate a beautiful- New York, where there. 14 inches of, of new snow. Mm, beautiful when it's new, right? Yes. I, I loved reading this book. Um, I must tell the audience that, you know, it's very broad in scope. These are three dynamic women. Um, Rachel Carson obviously wrote Silent Spring about the DDT pesticide um, ramifications. Jane Jacobs was um, confronted City Hall in New York and averted really disastrous city planning moves that would have illuminated parks, put up highways in green spaces and neighborhoods. Um, And Jane Goodall, I think we're probably all familiar with, single-handedly befriended the chimpanzees in the wild, while Alice Water changed our world in terms of slow cooking, coming from Napa Valley and her restaurant Chez Panisse. Uh, Your book, Andrea, suggests that the qualities and goals that these women had, even though they were far-reaching in the end, may not have even had a consciousness of what the outcomes would be, that they were far less grand in their goals and far more focused than, say, what Madonna calls world domination. Um, there was a quality that um, of even shyness about these women, and they eschewed the, the limelight. I wondered if you thought we'd started to get it backwards today, that we put fame before work, the cart of fame before the horse of work, and what your reflections were on how this works. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the um, one of my thoughts for the title initially was accidental revolutionaries, in that none of them set out to change the world, and, and in fact, each did in her own sphere, but 
they they were really they were really on their own beams. Each of them was driven by a kind of extraordinary curiosity and driven by her preoccupations. Um, Jane Jacobs walked every block of New York City trying to figure out what made some blocks work and what made others feel menacing. She she looked at parks and, and thought, you know, why is this one scabby with disuse and this other is just filled with life and cheer? Um, and she was just absolutely obsessed with city life, as was um, Carson in, in, in terms of nature. Before she wrote Silent Spring, she was a beloved um, writer about the sea, and she would spend hours staring into tide pools and looking at the various creatures. And I, I think it's easy to forget, but the act of losing oneself is, is really a precondition of selflessness. And each of them was just completely involved in, um, in their work. And it, it's easy to forget, but there, there were so few women doing what they were doing that in a way... They had very little to lose in that um, they weren't part of the status quo. They were um, they weren't welcomed into the academy. They weren't part of that. And so, as outsiders, they were in a way very free to pursue pursue what was interesting to them. Um, and 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 the other thing is that they they were they were each really interested in the common good rather than on individual advancement. The idea of individual in fact advancement didn't really occur to them. There, it was so impossible at that moment. It, it's really easy to forget that, you know, even in 1962, in many states, when women couldn't be on jury duty. They, they, you know, if they got married, they had to, and they had property, they had to give it up. They had so few rights that in a way, um, they, you know, they, personal advancement really wasn't, wasn't part of the picture for them. Um, they were just driven by this incredible curiosity about, about how the world worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and, said, and, once yeah. they started their work, they were calculating and advancing their cause, not themselves. They, as you say, they were, they were each very self-effacing. Carson was so reticent that after Silent Spring, she, Every time her agent said, you know, you've really got to speak to more people, she'd always say, oh, please, no, I don't want to. Um, she just really was shy and, 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 um, and didn't like the limelight. Really, none of them did. But um, they, were, they were pretty cagey about understanding how to reach their audience. I mean, Carson understood that women were her audience, that they were worried about the health of their children, and that the danger mm-hmm. of pesticides... And the fact that there was a link with pesticides and leukemia would really alarm women. So mm-hmm. she very purposely spoke to women's groups. She spoke to groups of women journalists. Um, she also knew that, um, and she spoke in a very personal way, weaving all in anecdotes and, and making people understand that it was going to affect their lives. And, and that was, um, and Jacobs was the same way. She, when she was trying to get people to sign petitions to save Washington Square Park in New York, which uh, Robert Moses wanted to put a highway through, and it was really the only green space downtown. She went around, she had kids um, uh, moving around and getting people to sign petitions, and she had them dressed up in um, in mortar boards, and, and it would say, save the square, which was sort of a joke, because, of course, there were plenty of squares in the 1950s. Um, right. Uh, square people. Who could resist a kid? Um, so, That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. And so by using kids, it was very, very clever. And so people would say, oh, the kids are so cute, and they'd sign the petition. Um, and I, I think that they, they, 
you know, they reach people in their in their way because they made it personal. They told personal anecdotes, but they also did the the really hard work of investigation. Right. And from a very micro viewpoint, because if you're looking at um, tidal pools, you're, you're really not seeing very much sometimes. You're really having to look. And Jane Jacobs, similarly with the city, you know, she really, she looked in the bodega. She saw people talking there, smoking a cigar on the sidewalk or, you know, men assembled over a chessboard. The things that really give vibrancy to cities and were the very things that city planners wanted to destroy by virtue of putting up high rises that had no street level life, for example. And I think the other thing that you you mention, um, you allude to is the idea that if you're really looking at um, the small, the very intricate um, and very, um, you know, seemingly incidental components, you start to see a whole, you start to see a woven web. You start to see the inner relationships of, you know, the chimpanzee to to human existence, to, you know, climate change. And um, I think, you know, it's clever what Jane Jacobs did with the children, but I also just read very recently, Christine Lagarde, head of the European um, Commonwealth Bank, um, she said that the reason she felt it was possible to turn her attention to climate change is that women, in fact, are interested in what's inherited, what's transferred to the next generation. It's not to say that men are not, but there is a special kind of almost um, genetic interest um, in terms of preservation. So um, I think the other thing that you kind of alluded to is uh, a lack of formal preparation, a lack of necessarily formal even education. Could you touch on that for a moment and how that impacts original thinking with these women? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, one of the things that drew me to, to this book is the idea that one person can make a difference. And um, in a way, this book is a, is a tribute to the power of direct observation, as, as you were saying. Um, most of us uh, operate by confirmation bias. We we think we know what we think, and then we go into the world and we uh, find things that support our ideas. Jane Jacobs said, I don't know what I think. I go out and I look at the world very carefully, and when I begin to see patterns, then I begin to see, to know what I think. And I think that um, that this this kind of, of um, sort of very, very objective, careful observation one allows one, rather than seeing sort of a generalization, the specifics end up to be very, very illuminating. And, and I think also the, um, the, the, what you were saying about Christine Lagarde, the, the sense of continuity, I think women are um, always, in, in a funny way, they're operating on a different timeline. They're looking for what is um, healthy and sustainable in the long term. And all of these women were looking at how the world worked. Jacob's cities, Carson, the natural world, um, good all animals. And they were trying to see, to protect what was being lost and to figure out how things worked and how they fit together in order to keep them going and to sustain them. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the fact that they didn't um, 
they were outsiders and they weren't and they hadn't been trained allowed them to discover what it was that was making things tick and and if they had been trained they might have been either ideological or they would have had already a fixed idea of, of what they were of what they were seeing or what they were looking for but because they were untrained they were looking in a much keener way and and that was a great liberation and and it, it was a sort of funny thing that being outsiders and being uncredentialed and untrained really worked to their advantage. They, they saw things in a different way from men. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Sally Helgeson says that men and women really do see things differently. Men tend to be uh, sharply focused and to be problem solving and, and to always re- being, they're always reducing the amount of information coming their way. And women tend to be um, scanning the horizon for more and more information and trying to, to see the larger patterns. And, and, and Helgeson says, you know, it might be that, you know, men were on the, on the hunt, whereas women were doing process or in things like planting and harvesting and things mm-hmm. that um, involved kind of repetition. I mean, not to be too absolutist, but there was a sense with these women that they were seeing the big picture and that somehow the world of the 1950s had forgotten to look at the big long-term picture. Right. Well, there was no concept that um, killing a mosquito with DDT, which was, by the way, sprayed on people's bedsheets when it first came out. Uh, It was not just the clouds of DDT coming down from planes that children played in or from the trucks that children played in. I mean, before anyone was aware. So, you know, there was no concept of this this substance, you know, if it's doing this to mosquitoes, what will it be doing to mankind? And then the link to leukemia was discovered. And, you know, from that point, you you start to you start to see that everything was very discrete. Everything was very kind of compartmentalized. So you know, one um, you know adhering dominant uh, idea that of progress, which is what the fifties was all about. Um, you know that that dominant theory was already not operative in the minds of these women because they really weren't necessarily imbued with it in colleges or institutions, you know? Um, so right. I think, you know, then it's also so fascinating to say, well, when Rachel Carson looks at this and she sees the impact of the DDT, it's like something's not right. And rather than shunt that idea aside in favor of, but it's helping us in this way. No, right. she lingered. She lingered on it. She stayed there. She stayed with her doubt. And how easy right. is it to act on your doubt when people are saying, no, 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 this is for the good of all of us. Um, right. you know, I think yeah. that, that's something amazing, isn't it? It, it really is. I mean, you, you absolutely hit, hit the, you know, the, the nail, the hammer on the nail. It, it, it's fascinating that, I mean, DDT at that moment was considered a kind of miracle panacea you know it would kill bugs that carried insect uh, insect uh, carrying diseases and one of the things that Carson saw because she was working as an editor the Fish and Wildlife Service and she was seeing the first scientific reports that were you know internal was that almost immediately fish were bobbing to the surface of, of rivers even though it was supposedly just going to kill bugs and, and they were dead, that animals were falling out of, you know, birds were falling out of the trees. And she was 
horrified and and yet the culture at large was saying this is really great this is you know there's they're spraying ddt and um soldiers in the trenches and killing lice and as you say they were actually spraying ddt on people's bed sheets and on the inside of school kitchens and shocking mm-hmm. but it, it's interesting that at that moment the operative mode in the culture was to was to count and categorize and make separations and see the world in atomized parts. Scientists were learning to break down the world into its molecular parts, and, and they were seeing things in terms of hierarchies and separations. And what these women were seeing when they looked in their various fields were unities and connections. What Carson saw was that, you know, you might think you were just killing a bug, but in fact... You, when when that bug was the only food for a certain bird, and that bird was the only food for a certain um, uh, fish, and and that fish, um, or, or or actually the other way around, that fish was the the food for a certain bird, and that bird was the only bird that carried a certain seed and planted it in a certain place. And she was seeing the whole web of life and how it worked all the way up to human beings, and that we in killing a, a bug that we thought was you know a pest. We might be actually killing the entire ecosystem that, that feeds us and sustains us. And, mm-hmm. and to see that so clearly was kind of, kind of amazing. I mean, the it world was. was looking at things very mathematically. And, and these women, by contrast, were seeing not abstractions, but living communities. And the mm-hmm. way changes into the whole, in the whole system could kill the system. Um, right. it, was, it was really, really a radical. It is radical. Um, I think it has been taken up by um, people of both genders, but I do, you know, here we are, we've arrived at COVID. And now we understand that COVID-19 was brought about by um, animals, the loss of their habitat, their weakening of their immune systems and susceptibility to disease that is now spread to us. And Jane Goodall was one of the first proponents of that. She hasn't wavered in her message in all these years. She's 83 years old. She's still saying the same thing. We have to preserve the habitat of animals and open spaces. Um, And, you know, the balance is obviously it swings from, you know, it's like a pendulum. But, um, you know, in the current administration, um, soon to be the former administration, if you have development as the priority, and why wouldn't you if you were not a real estate developer, you know, these these priorities become um, subtexts or pretexts for policy, which is also very interesting. Um, And I think, you know, look, let's take a look at how um, the outer world, not just this inner drive, this inner curiosity and kind of obsessiveness, but let's look at how the outer world facilitates change, you know, because when Bob Dylan started singing the answers blowing in the wind and, you know, um, Joni Mitchell, give, you know, give away your DDT. I'd rather have spots in my apples. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's positive, right? It's, it's interactive in itself. So um, we just have a minute left to uh, before a break, but I, I really think that, you know, we're going to take a look at the impact of the times, you know, the fifties and the sixties leading way into the seventies. And now what, time are we in? Are we in a time of awakening or have we gone back to sleep 
Sometimes you can't really tell, um, but we're going to take it up with Andrea Barnett when we come back from the break. She's the author of Visionary Women. It's something that will inform you, inspire you, and lead you to a certain hopefulness. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Andrea Barnett, author of a stunning narrative nonfiction biographical book on um, Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall, and Alice Waters, Women Who Changed Our World, and the title is Visionary Woman. Women by uh, published by Echo HarperCollins. Um, such a pleasure to read. And I must say, even though it's big and sweeping in scope, you can read the individual biographies. Um, I kind of read them backwards. Sorry, Andrea. I mean, I picked out. <laughs> it was a lot of fun that way because I could I could look at different women and see the associations and you you um, very brilliantly um, brought some of the uh, similarities together for us just in our conversation so far. Um, I do think when I look, for example, at Jane Goodall, who happens to be the biography that I started out with, she was, you know, we were just speaking of context. She was literally out in the jungle in Gombe by herself. It didn't work, the previous approaches to get near chimpanzees. They're notoriously shy and evasive of humans, maybe with good reason, um, because the previously, you know, teams of scientists would go out, the guides, including guides, native guides, who you would think would be, you know, sort of very um, sympathetic in the natural world. But, you know, many, uh, many of them had been predatory or just there was just too much of a human presence and the animals got spooked. So basically what happened was, if you can imagine this, Jane Goodall would go out and spend night after night after night lying there in the jungle or sitting during the day, opening her eyes and ears to this world of the animal world. And then when she 
did see um, chimpanzees, she made herself as self-effacing and small as possible rather than trying to dominate, which also is thematic in this. Um, And she also did something completely contrary to scientific research up to that point. She named the chimpanzees, not supposed to do that. That's a big no-no because you're not supposed to be looking at them personally. You're supposed to be looking at the broad species and behaviors Well, that didn't work for her. She noticed the individual personality differences between chimpanzees. And it was through this close, direct observation, as you say, and the personality of each individual chimpanzee that she started to understand the patterns and and then the behaviors and then understand the, the larger whole. I just thought this was just also a, a fascinating thing. And your book is told through the lens of very personal stories. Um, can you broaden just the idea of how you entered that, why you did it that way, and what you were accomplishing in this approach? Yeah, absolutely. I'm someone who only remembers ideas if they're attached to stories. So from the get-go, I thought, the, the the very, very important ideas that are woven through these women's work, I have to really find a way to tell their stories so that those ideas come alive. And so when I started writing, I, I was looking for the genesis of their ideas, and I was looking for the epiphanies, the moments of observation when there was a kind of aha moment where they thought, oh, I see a pattern here. I see connections. I see invisible ways in which these... Um, these things are all connected. I see a living community, and 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 so what I what I really tried to do was to recreate those moments, not to tell in an exhaustive biography, which you can't do if you're writing about four people. You write about everything that's happened in their lives. I was looking for the really significant moments in terms of the genesis of their ideas, and also the moments that illuminated the quirks in their characters. I mean, Jane. Um, Goodall was obsessed with animals as a child. She, the, one of the first things, independent things she did was sell her dog, her dollhouse in order to buy a dog. She used to sit in the trees for hours watching um, the birds. She'd, she'd kneel in the garden and, you know, watch worms and, and, and bugs. And so I, I was always looking for those moments that, that were, were really indicative of, of who that person was. And, and, and they were all preternaturally observant, which is kind of fascinating. Um, so, mm-hmm. so that's the way I approached it. And then I sort of thought of it. I wrote each profile, and um, and there was there was always a through line. But um, I'd put aside one, and I'd move to the next. And then when I read it as a whole, I started. It was almost like knitting. I I looked for where I dropped the stitches, where a certain idea that was really critical. To, to not just one woman, but all the women, somehow I'd sort of gotten buried in the stories. And so I tried to, to, to reconnect that idea. So it was, a, it was an interesting process to try to talk about four women. And I, I have to say, after the third woman, after Goodall, I thought, oh, I wish I was done. And, but then I realized <laughs> no water's so important that, you know, I've got, I've got to press on. Um, so it was a, it was a, um, and I have to say that I also didn't, when I started, I knew there were certain um, connections between the women. They were all outsiders, uncredentialed. They'd all changed the way we think about a certain 
uh, facet of the world. They were not ivory tower theorists. They were, um, they all spoke truth to power, but they were more subtle. This idea of connectedness, I discovered very inadvertently as I started researching their, their story and their work and reading their books. And, and that was really, for me, it was in a way the same process that they were using, which was to go out into the world and look carefully. And so I was looking for patterns as I was working and, and there was incredible excitement when I began to see, oh my goodness, there, there are deeper patterns here that they share that have to do with not only their individuality, but, but with the times and with, um, a kind of paradigm shift that they were catalysts for. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting um, that you say uh, Alice Waters, you mentioned, because she, we almost, and I'm, I'm, I think you did a, a great service by um, presenting her biography. It was really her story. I, I think that is more precise, um, her personal story, because she so deeply affected our culture that we almost take her for granted because now farm to table is like, uh, you know, it's part of our parlance. It's absolutely a part of our common expression. This restaurant is uh, locally sourced. The, um, you know, the brewery is local and it, and, you know, grown locally. All of that is now a part of our discourse and our sensibilities. But thanks to Alice Waters, because, you know, when she started out, it was canned peas it was, you know, like space food. Industrial really. food. Industrial food. So you had like TV dinners in little foil and you put those in. the. And the idea of shortcuts was the prize. You didn't want something right. that was going to take a long time to make. And then she introduces the idea of slow cooking and locally sourced food, supporting locally, supporting farmers in the Napa Valley, which happens to be one of the you know richest, most fertile and, you know, why was she importing strawberries from, you know, I don't know, Kansas or, you know, things yeah. that become absurd that if we're not just going out and looking, I mean, it's very hard to say to someone, a child, okay, you want to make a difference in the world, go out and look. But actually, that is what you're saying. And it really does make sense, right? Because if you go out and, you know, I, I think this idea of wonder points where, you know, these people became entranced by something. Um, Diane Ackerman says, wonder is a bulky emotion. When you let it fill your heart and mind, there isn't any room for anxiety, distress, or anything else. Um, you're just completely consumed by it. You don't have, um, you know, this sort of sense of uh, dramas appearing, irrelevant dramas appearing that, you know, kind of distract you from what you're doing. And I think that's something I also noticed about these women. They just kind of got on with it. They, it's not that they had it easy. None of them really did. Um, but they just got on with it. Um, you know, three of them were mothers in their own rights. Jane Jacobs was the mother of three ch- three children. Um, Rachel Carson took care of her nephew, raised her nephew. Um, and they didn't you didn't hear that whiny complaining, like, I have to do all this work kind of thing. They just kind of got on with it. And I feel like, have we missed the boat here by, you know, looking at like all of our responsibilities and then, you know, saying, woe is me when, you know, actually some of these responsibilities are what make us give us fiber um, and give us actually, actually um, texture as human beings. 
But I wondered about, you know, the, the concept of social isolation and how you think that played into these characters. Some of them, you know, never married. Others were living remotely. How did that play into things? Oh, so many things to unpack. First of all, I love Diane Ackerman. She, she also says we interact with the environment first and foremost through our bodies. There's mm-hmm. no way to understand the world without first detecting it through the radar net of our senses. And, you know, you mentioned Alice Waters. She, what, she didn't start out saying... I'm going to change the way the world eats. And as you say, it's, it's so much a part of the fabric of our lives that, that now we take it for granted. My husband grew up in a, in a very small community in West Virginia, and there's now um, a farm-to-table restaurant, you know, in this tiny town. And, um, you know, we, we, we now expect locally sourced, fresh, organic um, food. It, it, it's become, you know, it really is part of the fabric of our, of our being. But... Alice was a sensualist, and she was using her senses. And one of the things she realized quite early on is that the store-bought produce, although it looked perfect, it had no taste. And friends of hers were beginning to to plant gardens in their backyards, and they'd bring their produce to her to the you know back door of her of the kitchen of the restaurant. And she realized this has so much more taste. And the friends were were growing things carefully without chemicals, and so she found her way to organic, local, fresh food through her senses and through the lived and felt, not through some kind of theory. And and, and in that way, she was very alone because at, at the time, um, it was the, the ethos was efficiency and productivity and speed and uh, processed food and manufactured food. You could, you know, create, you could grow larger quantities and get it to more supermarkets. And she was saying, no, but we're, we're losing something so essential, which is, and she was so alone at the time, we're, we're, we're losing the taste of things and we're actually losing the vitamins and the health of, 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 of produce and, and, and meat and things. And I think each of these women, it, 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 it's, it's fascinating that they were so much on their own beam, but because they had arrived at their um, conclusions really through the lived and felt, through firsthand um, experience, through, you know, sight and touch and taste, and, you know, as you say, Godal's, you know, sitting for days and hours and weeks watching these chimpanzees, they had a kind of authority um, about what they believed. It, it really came from the body, from the razor net of our senses. And so they didn't, they, they were outsiders, but because they were, they had a kind of conviction about what they were seeing, it, it wasn't hard to advocate for those things. And they weren't advocating for themselves. They were advocating for a cause. Um, mm-hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt says, women seek power to address a cause while men often address a cause to seek power. And there's a big difference. I mean, these women were really seeing connections that that we'd forgotten. You know, before World War II, people did eat fresh local food because that's all there was. And it was with um, uh, refrigerated boxcars and transportation changes that suddenly food could be trucked, you know, across the country and stored in warehouses and then appear in big supermarkets and it was two months old or three months old. I mean, things, mm-hmm. um, and these women recognize that we were losing something very vital in our culture. And, and maybe as you say, there is a kind of dialectic where 
we lose sight of things and then we rediscover them. And these women were rediscovering things that had existed but were disappearing very quickly. And I think, you know, look at the uh, impact on, on climate change with all this transporting of food all around. And then to have, you know, Alice Waters just say, look, it doesn't taste good. So, you know, like right. that's where I'm, that's my starting point. It doesn't even taste right. good for all of this effort. Um, I think right. there, you know, I, I really, I think that, you know, you you touch on this idea of power, and I also look at the economics. I mean, going back to New York City, I'd love to say it's all changed now, you know, through Jane Jacobs. It hasn't changed. There are there are skyscrapers 95 stories tall that are apartment buildings with that are dormant empty spaces um, because of overseas investors. And there, there's nothing contributory to neighborhoods or to people. Um, you know, you look at the impact on minorities such as African-Americans who were basically warehoused in housing projects. It hasn't increased their quality of living whatsoever. You know, as you mentioned, it in fact contributed to crime and demoralization. Um, you know, you really have to look at how these things have boomeranged and it might be a really good time now that we've got a, you know, we've got COVID-19 and climate change right smack in our faces, it might take, it might be a really good time to take another look at some of these trends that just keep happening for the sake of money. I even wonder, you know, for all the, uh, the, the pro- proclamations of urban renewal, you know, we're going to build housing projects for, you know, and then, you know, you listen to African-American stories, like I grew up in the projects, what could be worse, you know, did it really even happen out of altruistic concerns to make people's lives better, or did it just happen for money? What What do you think? We've got exactly two minutes. <laughs> you yeah, can give a yes yeah, or no, no to that. It, it's so true. the The situation of cities can can feel very disheartening because the lessons were learned, and then the power of big money just just, just sort of steamrolled across so many innovations. And the, the strange thing is the neighborhoods that are really vital and alive are the ones that have at least some old fabric and some human scale buildings and then have street life and then have individual shops and where people have a sense of community and there's life on the streets, which is one of the things Jacobs advocated. And these skyscrapers, people are so alienated from the ground and from each other. I mean, there's, you never see anyone around these skyscrapers. And the idea that, that, you know, we boomerang back to that is very disheartening. And it may be at this moment because of, because of COVID and, and that real estate um, prices will go, rents will go down. Um, lots of the big box stores are closing up that we may see a resurgence of kind of grassroots enterprises and that we may see more affordable living. We can only hope. And as you say, climate change is so front and center right now. And, 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 um, especially in the lives of cities, most of which, most of, of which are built, you know, on waterways, on rivers or on the ocean. Um, and and they if if mm-hmm. climate change isn't addressed in cities, it won't be addressed anywhere. And I, I think this is a moment where we might be able to take advantage of what's what's happened, what's befallen us. There there, you know, even even the street life, all the cafes in New York City now have and restaurants have moved to the sidewalk into the street, and the 
the actual streets have been narrowed. And so there's less traffic and some streets have been closed off. And people are saying, we don't want to go back to mm-hmm. turning our cities over to polluting cars and bad exactly. air. We want more bicycle routes. We want more, you know, outdoor um, um, living. And so yeah. that this, this may be a, a swing of the pendulum in the right direction. We can only hope because... Because the situation in cities so much has has been lost and forgotten. Um, yes, I'm just amazed. At historic neighborhoods still that you still have to make the argument that they're 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 worthy of preservation when often they are the economic engines of whatever revitalization exactly. is going on, not exactly. high rise housing towers for right. out of town exactly. investors. Exactly, because where do people live now in New York? It burrows. Brooklyn, where there are leafy trees, where there are bodegas, where there's a lot of right. ethnic diversity, where people can get back to the feeling of the streets. And also, I just think, well, you know, we've got that phenomenon that you have when you go to New York City and come out of the subway and you don't know where you are because you can't all the buildings kind of look alike. And then you're kind yeah. of like, there's no real casual, um, you know, you can't just casually observe. You've got to like, oh, it's so embarrassing to try to figure out where you are. But I, um, we have to leave it there for, for a moment and take a commercial break. And, you know, when we come back, we're, we're going to look at some of this. Um, how how this individual eye, how this fortified human being that follows their intuition, how does that take shape? And we're going to come back with Andrea Barnett, author of Visionary Women, in just a moment. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Andrea Barnett, author of Visionary Women. And, you know, we were talking before the break. It's so much fun, the cafes and restaurants spilling out into the street. I suspect this is happening all all across the country. And, you know, it is a different vibe altogether when you can hang out in the street and see your neighbor, albeit by social distancing and wearing masks. But, you know, there is that very incidental, casual 
a conversation you wouldn't have had, um, interaction you wouldn't have had. When you see um, diners, you know, and you're, you know, at this time of year, you're huddled with your your blanket in the chair. And um, it's kind of, it's just really, it's really cool. As opposed to, for example, the windswept plaza, the gigantic, um, you know, take Lincoln Center, for example, and I think every uh, major city has one of these too, like just a plaza that's so massive, you can't help but feel totally impersonal, if not completely intimidated by the scale of the buildings. They're not human scale. They're not acknowledging of your presence as a human being who's only, you know, six feet tall or less. Um, So I just hope it is a moment where we can capitalize on some of the economic, you know, worries and, and the downfall. It may be converted. That is just such a hopeful thought. The other thing that's hopeful to me is, this idea that you just spoke of, Andrea, about you know the immediate um, sensory experience, bodily and through our senses, of understanding the world around us. Okay, if that happens, then each successive generation is going to have a new perspective. There's going to be a new, you know, taking stock of well, what's going on because you know, frankly, we get used to it. We get used to these monster buildings. We get used to things and we just think, oh, well, that just has to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. That is what these women have taught us. Um, And before the break, we mentioned, you know, the encouragement that they might have received. We know that Jane Goodall, instead of getting a teddy bear as a childhood toy, was given a chimpanzee, literally a stuffed chimpanzee. Her mother was told, no, that will give your child nightmares. You can't do that. And I wondered, Andrea, in your profiling of these women, and I mean really in-depth, so enjoyable, the reading of it, how important do you think this positive reinforcement of their quirkiness, of their individualism, of their not really acting like other girls on the block, you know, when you're staring at worms in the backyard or, you know, how important is it this, you know, mother-daughter dynamic or even the encouragement of a father um, who, you know, who just says it's okay. She doesn't have to act like others. Um, You know, Jane Jacobs had a bunch of radicals in her family. What's the dynamic there? How important is it? It, It's huge. I mean, one of the things that was so interesting is that a lot of these women had very, very um, nurturing, st- strong mothers who really kind of said, you can do, you can be whatever you want to be, whatever you can dream. It's not preposterous. Um, Jane, Jane um, Goodall's mother, well, first of all, Jane Goodall grew up in a household of women. She had sort of an absent father. And um, so, you know, when she said, when I grow up, I'm going to go to Africa and live with the animals, everyone said, of course you will. That, that, if that's what you're going to mm-hmm. do, you're going to, we, we, we believe you. Um, and they, you know, they wrote plays and musicals and, and sang together and there were tons of books and there was just the sense that whatever she, you know, could work, you know, that things took hard work, but that it, nothing was impossible if you believed in it. And so I think that had a huge amount to do with, with her, her 
preternatural courage and and sense of possibility. And and same with Carson. Carson's mother, um, you know, typed all her papers in in college and encouraged her at every turn and read aloud her books, you know, draft after draft, so that Rachel could hear if they were, you know, coming together. And she was she was hugely influential and 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 um, a really positive influence. And as you say, Jacobs, who was such a quirky kid, who was always getting sent to the principal's office, and who, you know, just was 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 a, a kind of pistol, even as a little kid, raising her hand in class and saying, "No, no, I don't, I don't think that's the way it is." And her her parents just absolutely encouraged that in her. And she, um, when she said, "I'm going to move to New York City. I, I don't want to go to college. I'm going to move to New York City and become a writer," they said. Okay, give it a try. But I, I think it's it's good for you to have a, a, some skill so that in while you're trying to survive before you become a writer, you can get by. And so she went to a sonography course for for you know one semester, and then she went to New York City. And um, and Alice Waters too. Her her parents were very very encouraging. And so I I think especially the mothers had a huge amount to do with these women's sense of confidence, self-confidence. And then, of course, there's, you know, there's that. And then there's just pure happenstance. Um, they were all lucky, too. Um, I mean, Jane Goodall knew she wanted to, to work with animals, but it was meeting Louis Leakey once she got to Kenya. She, she went to Kenya to visit a, a... She was invited by a school friend, a high school friend, um, who lived in Kenya. And so she went to Nairobi, but... She called up Louis Leakey, who was, was the head of the local museum there, and said, I want to work with animals. Well, that was a bit of luck that he, he needed. He hired her to be a secretary, but he needed a secretary. He was a bit of a skirt chaser, and so um, <laughs> she had to sort of fend him off. But she was very sort of single-minded about what she wanted, which was in some way to work with animals. So... The, that that sense that they were encouraged really came from their 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 parents, but or particularly their mothers. But also there was a kind of um, there was already an eccentricity there that you kind of have to say, wow, she sort of came out of the box that way. She was yeah. not going to let anyone get in the way of her of her dream for herself. Finally, the Me Too movement has an upside. You know, if Louis Leakey was yeah. attracted to Jane Goodall, who was incredibly beautiful, and each one of these women, yeah. such a kind of natural beauty and very unadorned, not interested in the in the cosmetics of it, the optics, um, very much substance-driven. Um, and, you know, you mentioned this idea of confidence um, and then being instilled by mothers. There are beautiful photographs in addition to this incredibly well-researched book. Um, there are beautiful photographs of, you know, there's Jane Goodall's mother arranging bones because she did come out to Kenya and help her daughter. Um, you know, really just very hands-on support. And I, I think, too, that, you know, we, we are now looking at how could something as dry as um, animal species or, um, you know, pesticides, how could any of that come to life without this like incandescence of a personal story or of this 
personal engagement that, you know, for example, Rachel Carson had, where she was literally enraptured and renewed and invigorated by nature so much that, you know, she told the story of the little crab or she told, or Jane Jacobs told the story of the man who had the smoke shop or, you know, like each one invigorated their treatises, which might have been discarded and put in the dustbin if it hadn't been for their writing coming so alive um, with their passion, their passion coming through, you know. Um, I I think this idea of confidence, sometimes I think it's a little overrated just in the sense of there's an inner feeling of acceptance, which is irreplaceable from um, family encouragement. But also the sense of, you know, maybe not being overly confident because Jane Goodall didn't even have a BA at the point when she went to Kenya. Right. Um, maybe it's a little bit of like, I'm not prepared. Maybe I'm really not good enough. Maybe I'm going to fall flat on my face. And so there's such an over-preparedness. They all went to lengths ad infinitum to get it right. straight, to, to add right. life and to evidence their findings. Um, your book in and of itself has, you know, just incredible references and is incredibly well um, documented. So I, I think there's a, real, there's a real balancing act there. Um, talk to us a little bit about creative hunches and following them and, and paradigm shifts between intuition and evidence-based information. Yeah, no, you're hit, you, again, you're, you're, you're so absolutely right. One of the things each of these women understood is that you can't change people's minds unless you win their hearts. And so they tried, they told their stories using anecdotes and using, um, and, you know, making it very specific so that Jacob's, uh, or Goodall spoke about the chimpanzees as characters in an almost novelistic way, even though it was based on really careful, hard research. But she animated the, the stories. And, and Jacobs, too, she made the life of cities come alive in a way that was entertaining and funny and charming and unforgettable. And Carson, too, who, you know, she'd look at the natural world, and it was so moving to her and so she would tell these stories of survival and and you know, the struggle for survival and make it so vivid and, and come so alive but she all three all four of them really knew that no one would take them seriously unless things were well documented so while silent spring is is about 200 pages long there there are 60 pages of careful notes um she carson was was um, extremely thorough about, even though she was shy personally, she was not shy when it came to work, and she would um, write to a scientist of, uh, in, in very different fields, people who were studying cancer, people who were entomologists, people who were, who were studying all these different aspects, and she would pick their brains for, for what they knew, and she would document, you know, so there were footnotes with, with references to mm-hmm. um, all kinds of very dry scientific papers. She was right. so careful about yes. documenting her way because she knew yes. otherwise she would be laughed off the stage. She wouldn't, right. she would be, right. as it was, the chemical companies were yeah. were plotting to, Appalled. you know, yes. um, 
Andrea, and, and, we and are out of that. time. We oh. are out of time. It's so, it's, it evaporates. You can find Andrea Burnett. At her, at her website, it was so enjoyable speaking with you. Thank you very much. And coming on with this message of seeing things for yourself, it's invaluable. Take care, everyone. Thank you to our engineers, Matt Widener. Oh, you're welcome. And Aaron Keller to our and thank executive thank you, Diane. Producer. It was a pleasure. You're more than welcome. Robert Giolino. And most of all, to our listeners, remember to stay safe and look with fresh eyes. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 